What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And look, man, you know what we do. It's season three. It's 2020. You know, fresh vision. You know, we're out here making moves, having conversations with movers and shakers, influencers, educators, public servants, executives, recruiters, entertainers. You know what I'm saying? Anybody who's willing to have an authentic conversation, centering and amplifying underrepresented voices at work. And today, uh, you know, I'm really excited about this particular interview. And I say that every time, but like I mean it every single time, even though I say it like over and over, but I really do mean it. Um, and so I'm really excited. This particular uh, episode, we have Dr. Oni Blackstock. Uh, Dr. Blackstock, how you doing? What's going on? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, look, what I would like to do, because see what I sometimes do in the past, I would give this like kind of like generic. I don't want to say generic, but I would like read off an intro, almost like a like a late night show. But what I but, and then I go in and I ask people to introduce themselves again. It seems kind of redundant. So what I want to do this time is just give you space. And for those of us who don't know you, just give you some space to talk a little bit about yourself. OK, great. Uh, so. Again, I'm Oni Blackstock. I'm a uh, primary care physician and HIV specialist. I also spent about past 10 years um, conducting HIV research, but now uh, lead the Bureau of HIV at the New York City um, Health Department, meaning I oversee our city's response to ending the HIV epidemic. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, parents, my dad, was an immigrant uh, or is an immigrant from Jamaica, and my mom was uh, Brooklyn-born and bred, and I have a twin sister, Dr. Uche Blackstock. Um, and, you know, we were very much inspired by our parents um, to really meld um, medicine and public health uh, with um, activism and advocacy, and so I get to do that um, in my current role um, leading the Bureau of HIV here in New York City. Okay, so first of all, I'm Incredible background, incredible legacy, um, and shout out to the Blackstocks, the family, um, and shout out to your sister, of course, as well. Um, so, so I know. So the background being uh, Jamaican. Now you know we do air horns. Now let me ask you this. Now I've asked our past Jamaican guests: Is it offensive or culturally appropriate that we also use air horns on our podcast? No, not at all. It's great. It's about the diaspora. Okay, cool. Because I gotta like, let them fly for you. Okay, so here, I gotta let me just drop them right here. Okay, because I'm just very excited and thankful that you're here. <laughs> now, 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 let's talk a little bit more about your background, right? So you you talk about like your your focus um, being being HIV um, and 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 that and that particular um, illness. What was it about that that work that drew you in particularly? Yeah, so I was in medical school when I feel like I quote unquote first discovered HIV, um, and that was actually when I was doing global health work. So I traveled to Ghana and West Africa, um, as well as uh, South Africa to do HIV-related um, research. And when I came back, I did a rotation as a medical student back in New York City and saw that we had um, black people, uh, Latino people dealing with many of the same sort of medical related issues and even like most just sort of socio um, structural issues um, as I did when I was in Ghana and South Africa and became very interested in our domestic HIV epidemic um, and so ended up uh, doing my residency, which is the training that you do after medical school um, in the Bronx at Montefiore Medical Center, where again, I was seeing young black and brown people dying of like advanced AIDS, which was something I was 
really surprised, and I think many people didn't realize it was still happening um, in New York City. And I think what I, in particular, um, what what draws me to HIV is that it's really um, not just an interesting biomedical condition, but it's also like a, a social condition, and it's really an epidemic of um, not behavior, but an epidemic of inequality. So it's the confluence of lots of isms and lots of phobias. And then you put all those together and you sort of get HIV and you see the communities that are most impacted. You know, it's, it's really interesting uh, because this, this conversation particularly, because you're in a position where you're providing um, awareness and research and thought leadership and care for underrepresented, underserved populations and sti- and oftentimes stigmatized and just oppressed populations while also being um, inter- being an intersectional member of a variety of underrepresented and, and uh, oppressed populations and, uh, and just identity groups. Can you talk about like what that experience, that compounded experience is like for you, like being in this space, being who you are? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think what has um driven me to do this work is because I'm from you know, many of the different communities that are impacted um, by HIV. So I think for some time for people who do this work, it's um, maybe about careerism or they find it intellectually interesting. Um, but for me, it's really about, um, you know, helping my people and my community. So, um, yeah, no, so it's interesting. I mean, I think having the different identities being um a cisgender black woman, being someone who's queer, um, and being at the intersection of these different marginalized, marginalized identities gives me a different appreciation and understanding of what the factors are that folks are, are dealing with, you know, out in the community. So, you know, and also, also as a physician. So just, you know, even when we're designing, for instance, social marketing campaigns, like, yeah. I can say, you know, I, I'm able to give my input. And, you know, we have a we had a campaign, for instance, that was focused on... Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. It's a once-a-day pill that um, people who are HIV negative can take to, um, to stay HIV negative. Um, and we did one for um, focus on, on cisgender and transgender women, um, women of all different backgrounds. Um, but what I did notice, and I think most other people didn't notice, is that all the women were very, like, femme-presenting. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, you know, in the future when we do this work, we might want to have folks who may be um, non-conforming in their appearance. You know, just have different folks who may identify as women but have different gender expression. Um, And so I think, like, just sort of that awareness of um, understanding the different needs that may be out there of having these different perspectives is something that I think that I can, I bring to this role and I think is, um, you know, really important because the reality is that in many cities we don't have people who are leading this type of work who are reflective of the communities that are most impacted. You know, that's just a really good point. It's interesting because, you know, even as we talk about like representation and and diversity and in our marketing and like presentation, it's interesting how colorism and patriarchy still like sneak into those spaces, too. Right. So like if you have if you have like if you're presenting a woman, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes it is going to be someone who is like like traditionally mm-hmm. femme or lighter skinned or like with, with hair that is a certain texture. Like there's, there's still like yeah. this um, template, right. That mm-hmm. individuals are going to come that they're, that we either consciously or subconsciously seek to like place people. Right. In. And even when you see, see like people in positions of authority or, or um, any type of subject matter expertise in the space, um, you end up 
I don't know. They, they again, they they start they they fit certain templates. Um, to right. Me. Totally. And so, I'm, so I'm, that leads me to my to another question, though, kind of starting at the top. So, your lived experience brings a certain level of empathy, um, along with your actual academic expertise. Um, may I ask, are there ever moments or times when you believe that sometimes your your lived experience or the the passion that comes with that lived experience is almost counted against you because you lack a certain level of uh, intellectual objectivity that maybe uh, white individuals or just or folks who are not necessarily identifying these particular identity groups uh, they can that they can relate to. Um, well, I think right that idea of like objectivity um, is like. I mean, it's like it's like a construct. It's like a white supremacist construct because we all come with our own perspectives and backgrounds. So it's sort of like a fallacy, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I mean that that might happen. I think I am also fortunate, or or maybe some might say unfortunate. But you know, I did get my college degree at Harvard undergrad. I was like a computer science major, and I was pre med. I went to Harvard Medical School. I got my master's of health sciences from Yale School of Medicine. So I have these, like, um, sort of these bona fides that are sort of respected more by white culture or the dominant culture, which I feel like gives me, quote, unquote, credibility among some of these folks, if that makes any um, sense. So I feel like that somehow, like, that helps to open open doors um, in a different way um, and that and then obviously having you know and just sometimes just even having just an MD people um, make assumptions and sometimes you can use those to your benefit um, which is helpful but you know but at the same time it's, it's it does feel it's kind of cringe worthy and kind of not the best feeling to be benefiting from just these same systems which also act to like oppress us as well so nah, I mean, no it, it, well it's <laughs> yes no well it's a it's it's complex and nuanced I'm just I'm just I'm curious about that because I as I continue to get into just this work, anytime you talk about like underserved folks or like doing work that seeks to um, to push for equity in certain spaces, that seems to be like this under underlying kind of attitude mm-hmm. sometimes. So I'm just curious. I'm just curious about that. Um, you know, you just spoke about used uh, one of the one of the buzzwords that triggers a lot of fragility in today's society, white supremacy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, you know, on Living Corporate, we've discussed the concept of decolonization. Um, and one of the ways that we've seen colonization demonstrated is in language. Um, can we talk a little bit about medical terms that intentionally or unintentionally undermine the reality and complexity of systemic racism and, and, and other isms and, and, and various forms of oppression? Sure. Okay, so... So I think any any term um, that like focuses um, the issue on the individual as opposed to like the structures and systems that drive risk and disease and poor health and poor well-being. So, I mean, for me, I mean, there's some I actually tweeted about this recently. So, um, you know, terms like someone being a medically complex patient or um, someone being high risk or non-compliant um, really is about, you know, white supremacist culture puts um, the onus and responsibility on the individual um, and doesn't, you know, it ignores like completely the, the context in which people are making decisions and choices. And so, you know, these are, you know, we're trying to like move away um, at least at the health department, my bureau from some of these terms, which are sort of victim blaming and lack recognition for these 
broader systems um, that that increase risk for individuals. And I'm curious about that. Like, what does it look like to to drive those conversations and start yeah. and, and to have folks say, look, stop. Like, let's let's take a step back and actually look at the systems that are impacting yeah. these individuals. Like, what does that look like? How do you how, yeah. do, how do you broach those topics? Yeah. So I think one of the cool things here, at least at the, at the New York City Health Department, is the former um, health commissioner. Her name is Dr. Mary Bassett. Um, she's a black woman. And she started a whole initiative called um, Race to Justice, which was um, sort of a, an effort to understand and um, recognize the impact of racism on public health and health outcomes. And so by her, someone in her position making the sort of normalizing com- conversations around um, racism um, really sort of opened the door for a lot of the work that I'm doing in my bureau with with the staff here. So for instance, we receive uh, lots of millions of dollars in funding from the federal government and from the city government um, that we then um, bid out in a competitive process to clinics and other community-based organizations to provide HIV prevention and treatment services. Um, and we we're looking at this process and, um, you know, seeing that the same sort of large organizations that are typically not run by the folks who run by folks who look like the folks who are impacted um, tended to get a lot of the, the contracts. And so what the great thing about being able to lead a bureau, lead an, an organization is that we made sure that um, we started looking at the process and figuring out what are the ways that we could make this process more equitable. But what we also did is in our request for proposals, we called out these different systems um, of oppression. You know, many times before I came here, like a lot of the requests for proposals would say things like poverty and food insecurity. And mm. it's like, but, but what are the things that drive those things, right? And like, we yeah. need to like call them out. And if we call them out, our, the, the, the organizations that we fund will know that these are issues that we are thinking about and we're thinking explicitly about equity um, in this work. And so... So I made sure that in our, in, you know, in our um, request for proposals that we use this language, that we don't just say people of color, that we say specifically the groups that are impacted. We say black and Latinx people like, yeah. you know, it's, you know, just just calling it out and being really explicit and really putting it out there so that it can it becomes normalized and really part of the work that we do. It's yeah. And it's interesting because I, I've noticed just over the past, I would say since I don't know, since. So over the past like decade or so, because I'm 30, so like I've been working for about nine or ten years, right? So as I and I just, as I've just kind of come into adulthood, just looking around, like looking at the language that people use when it comes to just like systems of injustice or inequity, it's almost like it's almost like they just we use language that is like things just happened. It's like we don't talk about right. exactly how things are connected at all. I think I was reading some story about uh, a young man who had a mistaken identity, and it says. Uh, young uh, uh, teen was hospitalized after being misidentified by police. Well, no, he wasn't hospitalized after being misidentified by police. He was hospitalized because he was beaten by the police because they mm-hmm. misidentified. Like, but it's almost like we take out the action or accountability in the language mm-hmm. and, and framing that we place. Um, exactly. So let, let's do this. As you know, um, since the publication of Healthy People 2020, it's been confirmed that stress is one of the primary drivers of racial and socioeconomic health disparities. Can we talk a little bit about the practical impacts of chronic stress uh, for black and brown folks and how un- and, and how it shows up when it's undertreated 
And then, you know, as you talk through a bit about um, what that looks like, I guess my part B to that question is, uh, what are things that black and brown folks should be looking out for regarding their own stress and what ways can they advocate for themselves as patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously there's like very weighty, um, big issues. Um, you know, I think stress um, has, you know, wide ranging impacts on our overall health and well-being. You know, when we are exposed to stress, so just the stress of, of being a black or brown person um, in this country, you know, I, I, I don't know if folks realize this, but at least obviously elevation in stress hormones like cortisol and um, norepinephrine and epinephrine, and those have like very um, harmful effects on the body. And so we can think about mental health. So, you know, depression and anxiety, and I have to full disclosure, um, you know, myself and, and dealing with um, depression um, and anxiety. And I think a lot of it is attributed to really the, the chronic stress that we um, face. I think particularly in some of these professional, professional um, work environments where we are held to very different standards um, than other people. Um, and so having, um, support network and having a spiritual practice, which is something I, I really want to develop more, are ways to really, I think, counter, um, counteract these, um, you know, and this impact on the quality of sleep that we have, um, our metabolism, cardiovascular risk, uh, you know, chronic stress predisposes to a, a wide range um, of medical conditions. So, um, yeah, so I think we, you know, when we see, you know, a lot of the disparities or inequities that we see, um, you know, are driven by, you know, the impact of, you know, racism and then, which sometimes has direct, you know, effects on us in terms of like the violence that, you know, is committed against us by police, but then also some of these indirect um, effects of dealing with chronic stress and the impact that it has on our bodies and minds. And so then... You know, I'll speak for myself. For example, I'm, I'm an example of this, right? Like just kind of like moving and shaking in these spaces, finally mm-hmm. taking a step to breathe. I'm looking back. I'm like, wait, I can't sleep. I'm like, I'm having like mm-hmm. hallucinations. I'm having like, I'm like crying for no reason. Like I'm, I feel mm-hmm. sick. Like I can't, you know, there's all these different issues that have like, just, you know, over time just been so untreated. And like, so finally, like just now starting to get help for that. I'm curious though, what, yeah. what, what points of recommendation would you have for folks who are at the very beginning of this, like how and how, what, what would you say to them who are just kind of looking to get started in kind of advocating for themselves to get the help that they need? Right. So I think, you know, obviously having a support network obviously is key. And so that people who are close to you, um, who you can speak to about, you know, the various stressors that you may have um, at work in particular, if you may be one of a few black people, or even if you aren't one of a few black or brown people, um, you know, our experiences um, in the workplace are very different from other people. So um, definitely having a support network. um, And I think also not waiting for people to um, check in on you, but also to the extent that you can um, sharing with like your family and loved ones, particularly those who, will be helpful, like how you are feeling. Cause I think sometimes for many of us, we are very high functioning. Um, and so when you, you, you may be depressed, dealing with depression, anxiety, but you are like highly productive, you're getting things done, you have a family, you have a great job. Um, but you know, you still need, um, you still need support in them. And it may not be overtly like obvious um, to families. So I think to the extent that we can, reaching out when we can. Obviously, you know, for instance, depression can sometimes impact people's ability to um, 
to motivate and to be able to reach out to people. So obviously then we have to check on, on each other. I think also um, something that I have been increasingly learning is having some sort of like spiritual practice or some way of like grounding yourself, whether it's yoga or meditation or prayer, um, whatever whatever it is, or whoever you um, pray to, um, having that be um, a regular part of your day and, and of your of your practices, I think, incredibly important. Um, because, like you know, we it's very hard to change these these systems, um, and for the most part, we have ourselves and we have our our support networks. Um, and so those are some of the recommendations um, that I would have. And I think also mentorship, um, if folks have, um, have mentors who, you know, have, you know, been in similar fields or even maybe, maybe in a different field but can provide um, guidance and support, that it makes a huge, huge difference. And also peer mentors as well, um, having folks who may be going through similar experiences as you um, where you can commune and like come together and commiserate um, can also be helpful. You know, it's interesting. So you talked a little bit about your um, your twin sister, uh, Dr. Ushe Blackstock. And um, recently um, she published an article um, titled Why Black Doctors Like Me Are Leaving Faculty Positions in Academic Medical Centers. And in the piece, towards the end of it, she says, academic medical centers must begin to recognize and rectify the historical and current impact of racism on the healthcare workforce. Their leaders should listen actively and respond accordingly to the concerns of black faculty members and students, adopt an anti-racist philosophy, and through a lens of racial equity, intentionally commit the time, effort, and resources required to dismantle the structural racism and white supremacy embedded in their current institutional cultures. Now, um, your work, again, we've, we've been talking about it this entire conversation, is to combat um, the attitudes and institute, white supremacist institutions that um, not only create but thrive off of inequity. I'm curious, in your mind, what incentives do these institutions have to actually make substantive, uh, long-standing institutional changes? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, you know, I think what we see motivates folks in the society tends to be um, financial incentives. Um, so I think if um, there is something in it, like sort of profit-wise uh, for these institutions, um, that can be helpful. Like um, I, I really don't know because I think uh, I think you know for many of these institutions, and I will also you know I work at a government agency. Um, the government um, has played a role for more than probably a, more than a century or two, probably several centuries in. Um, perpetuating, you know, racist policies. Um, and I think, you know, you know, nowadays, obviously, we want to, as a government agency, do the right thing and rectify things. But, um, you know, there's still, you know, the workplace here reflects um, what we see outside, like the public health department isn't immune from the inequities that we see outside. And I think it, it requires um, really visionary leadership and commitment um, to change. But what also requires is for like, white people to step to the side um, and um, there to be more leadership opportunities for um, black and brown people. And I think that's gonna, that's a really, a, I think, a struggle. I think people support the idea um, of equity in theory, um, but then in practice it looks really different. I think um, even just from conversations I had today um, with some of my staff, you know, in practice it can feel very uncomfortable. I think there's that saying, like, when you're used to privilege, equity feels like oppression or something right, like that. Right, right, right. Um, 
Yeah, so it's like, you know, when, when, when the going gets rough and we're, you're, you're really wanting to institute these changes, I mean, there's going to be, there's tremendous pushback and resistance, and there's a reason why um, things have stayed the way that they are. So I have to be honest, I don't have, like, a, 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 a an answer. I, I'd be curious to know about institutions that have had transformations and have done this well. Um, it's, it's a process. I know here at the agency, at the health department in New York City, you know, since Dr. Bassett came in 2000, she came in 2014, and then um, the initiative started, I believe, in 2015. You know, it's slow going because these are like, right. you know, processes and structures that have been in place, systems that have been in place for centuries that we're now trying to undo. All of so, a sudden. <laughs> yeah, so I think that there's this uh, organization that we work with called Race Forward, and they talk about equity being both a process and an outcome. And so we try to um, emphasize the process part because people often want to see, you know, concrete change. And where there's an opportunity to show concrete change, we try to, but we realize that this is this work takes a long time. So, you know, out of respect to the time, you know, I haven't been putting a lot of these sound effects in. But let me just tell you, you've been casually dropping crazy flex bombs this entire interview. Um, so I, I just want to react. I just want to react to that. You was also lighting them up like. Wow, that's impressive. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That was also Cardi B, ladies and gentlemen. That was that. Oh, I love her. I, lo- I love, love her. All right. So, look, let's do this Um, before we let you go. We typically give folks space. um, Shout outs, parting words. What you got for us? Wow. Okay, so I would say that um, I'm sure many of your listeners are people who've been um, quite successful by by the society's standards. Um, and I think often, like, we use, you know, degrees and job titles to assess, you know, to say how successful we've been. Um, but what I realized, um, you know, with the different um, leadership opportunities I've had, the different degrees I've gotten, um, it's really about finding happiness. I know this sounds really um, hackneyed and trite, but really doing the internal work um, to be happy regardless of whether you have, like, these accolades or not, because, like, my my leadership job here, my degrees aren't going to keep me like like you know happy at night. Like you know, it's really um, really just really believing in myself and that um, you know, regardless of whether I'm working in a in a clinic, whether I'm leading the Bureau of HIV in the health department, um, I still you know I'm, I'm you know I am really the work of like all my ancestors who come before me. Um, I like mm-hmm. represent everything that they have been through. Um, and so to, to, to then think about success in, in this like white supremacist framework would not be something that they would be happy about. So I just try to like think about, um, you know, mm-hmm. the family members and ancestors that got me here and to think about really my own self-worth and, and happiness and not to, to measure that um, by um, these different accolades and positions and degrees. Wow. You know what? Just shout out to you. y'all. Shout out to you. Like, this is incredible. Um, you know, there are people, I will say this as, as we wrap up, you know, there are people that I that live in corporate and myself individually, but also like, like our team will like look for it again on the, on the platform. And we'll like look at their social media and we'll be like, damn, they look, they'd be real spicy on social media and they get on the podcast and they're not as spicy. It's kind of like, come on, what are you doing? But like, I feel like you you have you have matched if not exceeded 
uh, your, <laughs> your spiciness on uh, like if I was to rate right like it is it is high. Um, like three curry goats like all pie. anyway it's it's great now look y'all this is, this has been dope y'all know what we do we're having these conversations every single week coming to y'all with dope conversations this has been Zach you've been talking to Dr. Blackstock okay Dr. Blackstock is the assistant commissioner of the NYC Department of Health and Mental Hygiene focusing on HIV prevention and research and study doing all the amazing things up in New York um, let's see here. What else? You know, check us out on Instagram, Living Corporate, Twitter, Living Corporate underscore pod. Check us out on uh, website, Living Dash Corporate. Please say the dash dot com. We do Living Corporate dot co, Living Corporate dot TV, Living Corporate dot org dot net. We have all the Living Corporates because see people hit me up, Dr. Blackstock, and they'll be like, mm-hmm. what's the website? I'm like, look, it's just it's Living Corporate dot co yeah. or Living Dash Corporate dot com. But people go Living Corporate dot com and then it right. pops up some Australian website. And I'm like, look, we don't have that domain. We have all the other exactly. domains. So you got to make sure, you know, you got to keep up with us, you know, like don't slow down, keep up. You might get left behind. So my biggest thing right now is I want y'all to make sure y'all check the show notes. Y'all look at the research and the work that Dr. Blackstock is doing. Uh, Make sure that you educate yourself, advocate for yourself. Uh, Shoot. And stay courageous out here. Did y'all hear all the stuff she was saying? Casually. She works for the government. She's talking about white supremacy. What you talking about? She's not scared. You know what I mean? Ain't nobody coming up here talking about, you know, she's not afraid. Okay. She's ready. Wait, and can I just say, wait, Zach, can I just say really quickly, um, just as a, I guess, I'm like, I don't know if I'm an OG now because I'm over 40, but just want to <laughs> say that um, I'm incredibly proud of you and this um, effort that you have and this, this um, your living corporate podcast. It's, it's really wonderful to see young people just thriving. So congratulations. Oh, my goodness. Well, look, we're both thriving. And I'm just over here like, look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. You know? <laughs> That's Basically. a Paul Rudd reference, everybody. Okay. All right, y'all. Till next time. This has been Zach again. You've been talking to, uh, you've been listening to me chop it up with Dr. Blackstock. Till next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.